0: And now, broadcasting from his floating home somewhere in the Atlantic Ocean, the dream business coach himself, Jim Palmer.
1: Good afternoon, everybody. This is Captain Jim Palmer, the Dream Business Coach. Welcome to another fantastic interview. I am uh, going to be interviewing a a fairly new friend of mine, somebody I met literally a couple weeks ago through a mutual friend, David Barnett. He is an author, speaker, consultant, and former business broker. I'll read his official bio and we'll jump right in and then I'm going to tell you why I asked David to come on my show. David Barnett sheds light on the complex and sometimes tricky process of buying, selling, and managing small businesses. And there's your first clue. You you have to understand that there's a lot of things we do um, as business owners every day. And so often the thought of selling your business is so far down the road. But we're going to hopefully uh, shed some light on that. Uh, David loves to say that it took him ten years to unlearn what he was taught in business school. University had trained him to be middle to be a middle manager in big enterprises. He was totally unprepared for the realities of small businesses. And isn't that the truth? After a career in advertising sales, David started several businesses, including a commercial debt brokerage, helping to finance small and medium sized businesses. Led to the field of business brokerage. Over several years, David sold dozens of businesses for others while managing his own portfolio of income properties and starting his career as a, sole, <clears throat> as a local private investor. David regularly consults with professionals and banks on business and asset values. David, you, you've got a lot going on. How are you doing today?
2: I'm doing great, Jim. Thanks for having me on your program.
1: Yeah. So, um, so I, I was, you interviewed me a week ago and I'm like, man, I got to get you on my program because uh, you, you, first of all, you, you've got a lot going on um, in your area. And I think the whole idea of buying and selling businesses and, and things like that. And I, we were just uh, having a little uh, uh, remembrance of our time together in the green room, so to speak. And and one of the things I, I remember we talked about was systems and procedures, but anyway, before we dive into all that good stuff, um, I always like to ask, are you, are you a first generation entrepreneur? Did you have parents or grandparents who kind of showed you the way or did you, or did like me, did you lose a job and go, well, crap, I just start a business? <laughs> what was your uh, path?
2: You, you know what? This is funny because I was raised by an electrical engineer and a stay-at-home mom. And my, so my father was your uh, a, a kind of a stereotypical engineer sort of fellow. You know, he would Spend his Saturday mornings tinkering in the basement, and uh, if any machine he owned broke, the thought of taking it to a guy would just, you know, it, it would be re- repulsive to him. So he would, he would have tiller, lawn tillers torn apart, snow blowers, all these kinds of things, and he would fix them. Now, I had always been told since I was a small child, and this is what people find very interesting, that I was adopted. Okay, and when I was in my early twenties. I had the opportunity to meet my biological father. And you want to guess what, Jim? What? This man had been a home building contractor, had owned a cabinetry shop, had owned a gas station, one business after another, his whole life. And, and so, you know, when people bring up the whole idea of nature versus nurture, it sometimes gives me great pause because all of a sudden, you know, and for me, I guess this is the most important part of the story. I'd always had an interest in business. As a child I was having little roadside businesses. When I got older I was doing delivery routes for flyers and, and newspapers and then trying to sell my own advertising space to business owners that I could deliver at the same time, right? Trying to trying to leverage my efforts. And I got into one business after another and when I got to university I studied business, but after university I worked for a short time with the Yellow Pages and then left them, well, a short time, I was with them for seven years, mm-hmm. where I really got a chance to learn about business because I was meeting with the owners and managers of all these small and medium-sized businesses. But I left that to start a business, which I sold. Then I started the debt brokerage, which you mentioned, but my whole life, one business after another. And so when I met my biological father, it was really an interesting thing for me because I thought, wow, here's where I get this, obviously. Because it wasn't um, something that I learned from the father who raised me, you know, he taught me how to fix things and, and how to be focused and how to pay attention and figure out how things work. And so I, I really feel that I'm the synthesis between these two things, the, the sort of maybe the, the natural talents of, of being interested in business, but the, the thoughtful application of knowledge that I got from the dad who, who I had at home every day.
1: That's so cool. A friend of mine, um, also an entrepreneur, um, was adopted also. And, um, he's, he's about my age. He's uh, actually a little bit older, like I think he's 62, but, um, he recently, um, discovered a long lost brother and sister. I think there were three kids that were, uh, separated very early and all the things they have in common is like uncanny. So anyway, (laughs) yeah, I think, um, you, you can certainly learn a lot of things through the nurturing part of it and who you're with spending time with listening to and things like that. But, I've I've also learned in my own case I'm I'm not adopted but all I gotta do is look at my dad and his medical history because it's all coming my way <laughs> everything <laughs> I've still got more hair but I'm losing my hearing my eyesight's going bad I mean everything that he to, oh crap that's coming up in ten years I, that's anyway that's kind of funny but you know you're so it's interesting. There's so many um, people that I talk to that are in marketing and and setting up and growing businesses. You're kind of on the back end in a way. And I, I know you got your hands on a lot of different things, but one of the things that I always um, talk about with my clients is you gotta get your eyes minimum five years down the road and, and, and more realistically 10 years down the road. Because when you're ma- when you're managing and growing and and you know running a small business, you're, there's one set of I don't mean a set of rules, but there's certain things you do as entrepreneurs. I mean, we we obviously want to minimize profit, you know, so we can minimize our tax burden. But then when it comes time to selling a business, people want to look at how profitable it is, right? It's not that not that I'm telling anybody to have two separate books, but the other thing is you want to have the new owner believe that not only is there cash flow but there's systems and procedures in place so that the new owner can take over the business when you kind of drive over the uh, horizon, so to speak.
2: Yeah. You know, it, most businesses out there were started, you know, not purchased. When, when I speak with people who want to sell a business, this is the first question I ask is, did you buy this business or did you start it? And the vast majority of people began a business. And, and so entrepreneurs have a vision, what they want to build, and then they go about doing the hard work to make it happen. And most of the time people get into business because they need an income or they see an opportunity to do something better but it's the income that they're after. And what happens so many times is people will get the business going, they'll start to get that income they were after and and then all of a sudden the foot comes off the gas pedal, right, And we, and we see this a lot, you know, so, particularly with what we'll call technician owners. So somebody knows how to fix cars, they start an auto repair business, they get it to a certain level where they have the income they wanted and then they're not opening a second, third, fourth location, right? They're just going to run that business. But they don't think about the selling and when, unfortunately, what usually happens is something personal will occur in their life divorce, poor health, you know, a diagnosis at the doctor, um, retirement will come along or suddenly they need to relocate or, or something. And then all of a sudden they want to sell the business and it requires them then to go and try to put together this presentation for a buyer. And depending on how they've been running the business, it can be easier or more difficult. And what, what I learned through my career as a business broker is that when you walk into someone's office and they're sitting in the middle of a nest of yellow sticky notes and there's nothing written down and everything's going on in the head of the owner, that's scary to buyers because they're worried that if they don't have all the same components in their head that the seller has, that they won't be able to run the business. And so while I was a broker, I eventually decided that some of these businesses were really not sellable Uh, And I would explain to the sellers, like, if you could hang around with me for a year or two and we can work on some of this stuff and create some of these processes, then maybe what we can do is we can make it easier for a buyer to buy. And you know what happened, Jim? What? Uh, What would happen is these people who were (laughs) overworked 60, 70 hours a week had never taken a vacation. They would start to get these processes in place. They would start to be able to delegate responsibilities to other employees They would start to be able to have other people do tasks and then be able to measure the effectiveness of those employees because they had workflows in place and then workflow tools and then ways to look at the efficiency of those employees. So now we're talking about individual level KPIs. They would start to implement these things and then they would decide that they didn't want to sell the business because it would actually be the business they thought they were going to have back when they started it. And, and so, when I when I talk to people, when I talk to groups, I say, look, no matter at what stage you are at in your business, even if it's day two, <clears throat> you have to get your business ready to sell, because that's just simply taking care of the asset, and you have to think of it as an asset. The, the The business is a system of people interacting to produce a cash flow for you by solving the customer's problem. And if you you know if you can't do it right, your business is going to fail, but that system has to be controlled, orchestrated, have a roadmap so that everybody who's a part of the system knows what they're doing. And um, by making that system as, as clean and as transparent and as easy to operate as possible, not only is this asset going to be more saleable when the day comes, it's going to be easier and more enjoyable to run today and most of the time more profitable.
1: It's interesting you know you 've written several books, um, one of them is twenty one stupid things People do when trying to buy a new business and how to avoid these not novice mistakes so if someone 's interested in buying a business and you know, you and I have something else in common. I was in the franchise business for about eight years and um, so that's obviously, it's another way to grow is, uh, well, there's the franchise side of things, but there's another way if you're in the opening bit, opening different businesses, especially, uh, retail locations, things like that, you can either open them or you can buy existing ones, convert them and things like that. But what, don't, don't go down the whole list of 21, but what are a few of the stupid things people do when they're, when they're trying to buy a new business? And I'll bet you, if you don't mind, I'll bet you one of them is getting too emotionally attached to the, to the excitement or am I close on, is that one of the 21?
2: Well, I'll, one of the 21 that I see the most often is that people will be bamboozled or confused by the two different hats that they're supposed to be wearing when they're out buying a business. Okay. So when, when you buy a business, most small businesses, when you, when you make that purchase, you're going to become the person that runs it, right? And so you're wearing an investor hat, but you're also wearing a job seeker hat. And when you purchase that business, two different things are gonna continue to occur. Number one, you're gonna go to work every day and run the business. And number two, you're going to try to have a profitable investment for the money that you put in and and borrowed to buy the business. And here's here's the, the mistake people make, is they'll look at the total cash flow available to an owner manager, we call it seller's discretionary earnings, and they'll look at that as the total return on the money that they're investing. When in reality, it's a combination between the return and the wages that their time commands. So if you were gonna go and work for somebody else, you would expect to be paid. And that's one of the most fundamental mistakes that people often make when buying a business is they fail to separate that cash flow between the money that they should get simply by showing up every day, given the skills that they bring to the business and the money that's then available as a return on their investment. Because when you, when you do separate them, what you often find is that the business has been overpriced, that you can't get an adequate rate of return once you, once you factor out the money you should be earning as the person who runs the business.
1: Mm. What's, an, what's another one or two mistakes when uh, seeking to buy a business?
2: Well, one of the biggest ones that I often come across is that people will seek advice from people who don't know anything.
1: Yeah. So,
2: so, you know, it's funny, you know, that whole Jim Rohn thing, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Yep. Well, people who own and operate businesses tend to have circles of friends of other business people and they will, they'll confer with each other all the time, right? They'll talk to each other about their issues, problems, and get advice from other people who are running businesses right who may have direct experience with the same kind of issue and what i've what i've run across many times is people who are going to buy a business for the first time have never bought a business before and maybe they've never run a business or managed one and so they'll go and seek advice from their brother-in-law or their neighbor you know maybe who's a postal carrier or something or or their clergy person and they're and they're getting feedback and advice about the business acquisition from people who also have never bought a business And I, and I continuously run into this where people will say, well, my brother says this and I'll say, what kind of business does he run? And he, and he doesn't. Right. Yeah. And, and that's a very common one as well. And um, failing to properly normalize. So uh, when you have a, a business, for example, that owns a building businesses and buildings are evaluated in very different ways because a building is a tangible, long lived asset and real estate appraisers, for example, when they look at a commercial building, what they'll do is they'll figure out what the net operating income should be, what kind of rent the building should be able to collect, and then they'll look at the market and they'll sometimes use what's called a capitalization rate. They'll say, real estate investors in this city are demanding an 8% rate of return, here's the income, so here's the value of the building. Well, if you look at a business that owns a property, What will sometimes happen is it'll show a certain profit, but we need to separate the building from the business. And the way that we do that is by removing the building from the balance sheet and then adding expenses to the profit and loss statement. So for example, um, a, a business that operates from a building that it owns won't have a rent expense. Well, I want to create a rent expense because I want to see what this business would be doing if somebody else owned the building. And that allows me to isolate the activity of the business from the activity of the real estate because part of that profit that the business is showing really belongs to the building. And unfortunately, when we do this a lot of the time, what we find is that the business is underperforming. And it's a sad story for sellers because what has been happening is the capital tied up in the real estate has actually been subsidizing an underperforming business. And, you know, accountants when they help you with your books, their number one concern is making sure that you know, there's an accurate description of the profitability so that you can pay your taxes properly and avoid you know, entanglements with, with tax collectors and stuff like that. But they usually don't look at it from a finance perspective, which is what is the value of our, of our assets, the true market value? What kind of return on equity should we be seeking? What kind of profitability do we have to have in order for make it to make sense? for us to have invested in this property, machinery, inventory, et cetera. And and that's the way the buyers look at it. They say, I've accumulated this cash through savings or borrowing or what have you, and I'm gonna buy a business. Now, what do I get for this investment? What is the cash flow? And if the cash flow doesn't justify the investment, nobody's gonna buy. And so that one of the stupid things people do when they're buying is they don't understand how to make these normalizing adjustments and then only later do they find out that they've paid way too much for a series of assets that aren't producing a high enough rate of return.
1: Wow. Um- in our uh, eight or nine minutes I got left, I want to talk about how to say <laughs> Am I
2: talking too much, Jim?
1: No. I'm, I, by the way, funny insider secret. I love guests when I ask a question. They just go. No, I mean, no, I'm totally serious. You're, you're, it's great information. But you, you see, you run a podcast. So this is inside baseball, folks. Sometimes you ask a question like, what's the meaning of life? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, no, this is great information, which just makes my job easy. But I want to talk about how to sell your own business. So um, a couple questions. When should somebody, well, I think you actually answered it. You should start thinking about selling a business almost, almost on day one, but somebody's been operating a business for five years, 10 years, 15 years. They're not quite ready. They don't see themselves retiring or, or moving on to something else. But at when? when should that thought and when because when should you start thinking about it? And then what are some of the first steps to put that in place?
2: Well, you, you can plan all you want. But when I, when I had my business brokerage office, people used to come in because they they wanted to learn about selling. And the, they would say, I want to sell my business. And I would say, that's great. Why do you need to sell? Do you hear? Did you hear the transposition of words there?
1: Why do you need to sell, right?
2: Need and need. And so th- th- sometimes they didn't have a need. They were just curious about the value of their business, things like that. Well, here are the top reasons why people eventually do sell a business. Number one is burnout and fatigue, uh, followed by divorce, poor health, the need to relocate and retirement. Okay. So those are the top five reasons. Uh, Four out of those five are not planned for. So you can think about uh, an ideal exit over an ideal period of time because you're approaching retirement age or something like this. But the fact of the matter is that 80% of the time when a business goes up for sale, it's not something that the owner was planning for. And so that just to reinforce the idea that you need to be thinking about it all the time. Um, So uh, what was the other part of your question?
1: Well, I, you know, so I want to, I, I really think people don't think about when. So I, I think that's good. When should you start doing it? And then what would be the first, second, and third thing to do if if someone said, you know, somewhere in the next three to five years, maybe eight years on the outside, I'd love to be able to sell. I mean, this is, and, that, and I loved you said it earlier, David, a business is an asset. It's something you invest in. It's something you, you want to maximize. And part of maximizing the return you can get on that asset is by creating a business that's extremely sellable. So what are mm. a couple simple steps to think about with, with that?
2: Well, the next thing is to be start being honest with financials. Um, you know, you mentioned earlier in the call that that sometimes business owners will do things in their business because they're trying to minimize their tax burden. And, you know, if you have a small lifestyle business, I I get why people do that, right? They They want to have their cake and eat it too. They want to Have a lower tax burden today, and then be able to sell their business down the road. The problem is when you're not honest in your financial statements, it means that you're not creating statements that you can actually use to manage the business. And accountants have have developed over hundreds of years these systems. Basically, an accountant records what happens in a business, and then across three sheets of paper, creates an image of what is happening in that business and what its status is in that moment. And if you're doing things in your business to try to manipulate those numbers, it means that you can't look at those numbers to manage the business, right? And so so I always say to people, we have to be looking at those numbers the accountants are producing to make sure that we're doing what we think we're doing. So I'll give you a quick example. I had a client who was in a business where they would, they would build things custom and then go and install them for their customers who were other businesses. And in their quotation they would fit in certain gross margins that they believed that they needed to get. So they would mark certain, the product up a certain amount, mark the labor up a certain amount, mark the travel up a certain amount. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, so then they would get paid and at the end of the year they weren't making enough money. And I said, well, how do you know you're actually getting the gross margins that you think you're getting? And they had no idea how to know. And I said, well, the answer is your financial statements. So we had to go and look at their P and L And of course, what they had is they had all these different income categories, product, labor, travel. And then underneath that, they had cost of goods sold, all lumped together in one category. Oh my goodness. Right. And I said, so if we're going to use this, this monthly financial report that you're paying a bookkeeper to put together for you, we actually have to divide out our costs so that we can match them with our income lines. And so then at the end of the month, we can look at our revenue on installation labor, and we can compare it to what we spent on labor, right? And we can actually see if you're getting the margins you think you are. And of course, the problem was they weren't. So they were—they believed that they were getting a certain, uh, you know, return or margin on their labor. And what was happening is they were underestimating the amount of labor it actually took to do some of their tasks. But because they weren't measuring things and they weren't looking at the financials, they didn't have a, a, a feedback loop or a, a second you know, system for verifying what they believed was going on, on their estimates that they were working up in their quotations. So once they realized they were spending twice as much on labor as they thought they were, then what's the next step? Some sort of tool, a job sheet where all the different people who touch a job indicate how much time they put in. And now they're able to audit the time that goes into each job. And of course, Jim, then what happens is you find out you've got a guy on payroll, you're paying 40 hours a week, but he's only accountable on the job sheets for about 26 hours. So where's the other 14 hours going? Right. Right. And now you're actually able to manage the business. And when they looked into it, what they realized, of course, is he was spending other time. He wasn't goofing off or anything, but he was spending time doing other things that had been handed to him as tasks but they weren't properly recording where that labor was going. So for that fellow, you know, 26 hours a week of his labor belonged in the cost of goods sold. 14 hours a week of his labor belonged in the overhead labor. And so now, again, when they look at the at the all the other business expenses under the gross profit, they're able to see where they're spending money. the The, the accountants have got all of this stuff worked out but if we're not willing to properly, you know, feed information into their system, then we can't use the output for its intended purpose, which is to run the business, right? And then and then from a finance perspective, I think owners have to sit back and take a look at what is the value of what I've invested in because things like the book value of your machinery and stuff never accurately reflects what its true value is, and that's That's just because the accountants are trying to do a mathematical method for depreciating things and whatnot. And it doesn't jive sometimes with the actual market value of things. I always say to people, you have to figure out what kind of return you're getting on the, on the capital you've tied up in the business, because it's an asset. If you're not getting an adequate rate of return, we have to either figure out how to make more money or how do we get some of the capital out of the business?
1: Wow. Wow. So, David, um, so you got all these books. I know you got a bunch of websites. How, how can people connect with you if they want to tap into your brain a little bit, need help buying and or selling a business? What's a good place for them to go? Well,
2: the easiest place to go is davidcbarnett.com because it's my blog site. And uh, from there, they can see the other websites that I maintain. You know, there's one for people that want to buy a business, one for people that want to sell, et cetera. And, um, you yeah, know, come on over. You'll be able to see where my YouTube channel is and uh, I think I'm I'm getting close to 400 videos Jim. So and Is that and right? Most of them are are based upon questions submitted by people um who are either trying to buy, sell, finance or 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 have an issue running a, their small business.
1: Is your YouTube channel David C Barnett if they go to YouTube or?
2: Oh, I don't know.
1: Yeah, Who knows? <laughs> Just go to davidcbarnett.com. <laughs> That's so funny. You, you, you'll you'll <laughs>
2: I just direct everyone to the blog. You'll, I know. You'll, you'll watch a video, click subscribe, and then you'll be able to find it when you go into YouTube. There you go.
1: <laughs> Listen, I, I laugh only because I don't know where half of my stuff is. Thank God I got people who are just got my back. <laughs> you know, people, Jim, what software do you use? I, I don't know. Ask Kate or Adam. I don't know. <laughs> so, David, thanks so much. It was really great connecting with you uh, tw- twice in a month here. and I appreciate your, appreciate your time today.
2: Awesome, Jim. Great talking to you. Have a great day.
1: Yes, sir. Hey, friends. That um, that concludes this great episode of um, Dream Business Radio with David C. Barnett. Uh, some really, really great information. Uh, if, you are, if you and I are not connected, my home base is getjimpalmer.com. Connect with me in my free Facebook group, dreambizgroup.com, dreambizgroup.com. That is it for this week. Until this time next week, another great interview. I am Captain Jim Palmer somewhere, actually today in Norfolk, Virginia, <laughs> making our way south. And you have an awesome day. Take care, everybody.